You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. What is good, everybody? Buongiorno, buenos dias, ni hao, konnichiwa, motherfuckers. Welcome, one and all, to this very special episode of Abakabu Cafe. This is the English-language Kimagure Orange Road podcast, and I am your host. My name is Jason Almi, and I'm very, very pleased that you're joining me today for this episode. I've looked forward to this for a long time. Today, we're going to be talking about the first Kimagure Orange Road movie. The most famous, the most watched, the most beloved Kimagure Orange Road movie entitled, I Want to Return to That Day. I may also call it Anohi as we discuss it because that's a good shorthand. But this movie was originally released October the 8th of 1988. It's coming out quite shortly after the end of the TV series, only seven months after episode 48 aired. So likely it began production prior to the end of the TV series, and its release was very well-timed. They're striking while the iron is hot. This came out at the peak point in Orange Road popularity in its motherland of Japan. The film was directed by Mochizuki Tomomi. Mochizuki directed the pilot episode, which we'll talk about soon on the Patreon. It's going to be a Patreon-exclusive episode for the foreseeable future. Feel free to go check us out at uh, patreon.com slash teamalmy if you want to get in on that. And uh, Mochizuki also directed episode 48. Those are the only two episodes that Mochizuki directed. And so this is a tremendous departure from what he's directed previously. And really, he doesn't have a lot under his belt going into this. But He does a splendid job. He does a fantastic job. The direction of this film is impeccable. It's one of the aspects of this film that I will not complain about is the the direction. The cinematography, the mise-en-scene, editing-wise, all the things that he's responsible for are the reason why this film was so beloved, remains so beloved today, more than 30 years later. The film was written by Terada Kenji, of course, Tarada Kenji comes back to write the film, as if he'd let anybody else write the film. Tarada wrote 21 of the TV episodes. That's out of 48. 
he also wrote five of the OVA out of eight. So easily, he is the most prolific Orange Road writer after Matsumoto Izumi himself. Terada has given us crucial, important episodes, like the first three episodes of the TV series, as well as episode five, The Problematic Part-Time Job. These are tremendously formative episodes in creating the world of Orange Road. On the other hand, he's given us some really silly shit, like the episode where everybody tries to get Jingoro laid for some reason. They think he's in heat, and they got to find him a girlfriend, only Jingoro is trying to find his mom, and it is the most bonkers, off-the-wall episode. And and then he comes around with this. This is the most somber piece of the Orange Road media franchise, hands down. Now, he's written the majority of the Orange Road anime, so it makes sense that he would have the most range, but it also means that he should be the most knowledgeable writer within the Orange Road anime production team. He should be the least susceptible to accidental continuity errors or other goofs. So I'm going to assume that every element of this film's writing is intentional and calculated. As I mentioned a moment ago, this film represents a tremendous departure from the rest of the Orange Road media. Because it's so somber, because the tone is just so different, it's like watching a Star Wars film that contains zero reference to the Force. Speaking of which, this film contains no reference to the Kasuga family ESP. There's almost no comedy. There's a few moments of levity, but they're almost garnish in this film. Also, the cast is pared down. There are characters like Yusaku missing. We're down to a bare-bones cast. Even mainstay characters like Kasuga Takashi only appears for a few seconds on screen. He's got one or two lines. We're really focusing in, honing in on our principal characters here, and there's not a lot of time devoted to anybody else. Even the other characters, the side characters that do appear, they don't get a lot of time or development. They don't get any B story. We're really focused, laser focused, on the love triangle in today's film. Also, a little bit weird stylistically is that this film contains almost no voiceover. Very, very little voiceover. And that's something that we're very used to. Kasuga's voiceover features prominently throughout the television series in OVA. He's our narrator. He's our main character. We always get his thoughts on things. He always drives the story forward. Sometimes he gives us important details and information that we need. But his voiceover is ever-present, and in this film, it sure isn't. He gets a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end, but we don't get inside his head like we normally do. The film opens silently with black and white title cards, and interestingly, they read out the characters' names, which is a bit unusual. Typically, these opening titles are the place for top-billed talent, actors, maybe the director. This is where they're billed, but... Billing the characters as if they're the principal actors in a film has the effect of making it seem as if we're watching a film within a film, which is something we do see a few times in the television series. It's not unheard of. Komatsu and Hata make student films during at least two of the episodes. And viewing Anohi as a film within a broader media franchise would help to explain the extreme tonal difference, but to me it's very clear that Anohi was not intended by Tarara or Mochizuki to be interpreted as such. I think it's clear that they intend for this film to be a sequel, a proper ending 
for the television series. Oddly, when we see the main title, Kimagure Orange Road, it's still rendered in its recognizable bubbly font, even with the rainbow still there, which uh, it's appropriate for the other Orange Road media, but something as fun and bubbly as this Orange Road title seems kind of out of place in I Want to Return to That Day, given how serious this film is. It's an odd choice for the title. It's incongruent with the tone of this film. Our black and white continues with the opening. We see establishing shots of a cityscape during winter. There are bare trees and and all the people are wearing coats. It visually communicates the season even before Kosuga's voiceover informs us that it's February. Black and white and sepia tones are common enough in the Orange Road TV series, typically used for flashbacks to create a stylistic juxtaposition that tells the audience that we're seeing a flashback or uh, something that a character is imagining. There's a similar function here, uh, but opposite use. So our frame story, which is told in the present day, at least relative to the release of the film, is presented in black and white, while Our flashback, which is going to form the majority of the narrative that we're watching, is filled with the vivid color that we have come to associate with the Orange Road visual style. With the winter imagery and the black and white, the opening has this dreary feeling to me that I'm going to discuss a little bit more towards the end of this episode. And it's hard to say when the opening frame story is occurring. We know it's February because Kasuga just told us that, and the imagery reinforces that, but what year? The TV show has already depicted February of 1988, so it can't possibly be then. Also, Kasuga and Ayukawa should still be in high school in February of 1989, so that would be a little bit early for their college acceptance. On top of that, the OVA episodes released in 1990 and 91 depict Kasuga and Ayukawa as high school students with no mention of college acceptance, which kind of muddles things further continuity-wise. While it's possible that we're witnessing the frame story occurring in some undisclosed future year, maybe it's 91, maybe it's 92, it's more likely that we're not really supposed to worry about the continuity from the TV series. I've mentioned that a few times when I've talked about television episodes like Time Runner, Kyosuke episode, Will My Birthday Come Twice, the one where his doppelganger walks into the restaurant at the end of the episode. Everybody looks shocked, shits their pants, and then we never talk about it again. Continuity is loose with Orange Road. Hopefully, we're not expecting tight continuity, although there's no excuse for Tarada, as I mentioned earlier, goofing on any continuity. But given the extreme tonal difference in this film and the lack of continuity with the TV and OVA series, I have a hard time viewing Anohi as this necessary capstone to the TV series in anything beyond a spiritual sense. It's hard for me to see this as I believe Terada and Mochizuki intended to be this sequel that that properly ends and caps off our Orange Road anime series. For me, it feels more like a spiritual ending. This is the closure that people wanted, the painful heart-rending closure that everybody wanted, right? Kasuga manages a little bit of levity, even in black and white. He causes Ayukawa to giggle at him when he fogs up the inside of his helmet. It's a nice moment that shows the easy rapport between them, but it's not a moment that's really meant 
as comedy for the audience. It's strictly a gag for Ayukua. It's not really for us. It doesn't make us laugh, but it shows us him entertaining her kind of and how they get along. As they walk across the campus to go view their acceptance, Kasuga hears something that stops him dead in his tracks. And it's something that's done so well in this film. Terada and Mochizuki do a masterful job depicting that feeling of immediate nostalgia, that lightning strike that sends you back in time when you hear something that jogs your memory. And we see nostalgia here as a reflex. It's, it's something that's out of Kasuga's control. He's not expecting it. And then wham, he's thrown right back into his memories and these feelings come flooding back. And this is something that happens in real life to us. And it's masterfully rendered here and presented. There's the sense that Casca's time travel in episodes 47 and 48 of the TV show were like a metaphor for that almost violent jarring of this sudden memory coming back, like when he rockets to the past. Here, it's more subtle, and it's it's less zany and kooky, and it doesn't involve the power, but they still evoke that instantaneous, immediately drawn into his memory. It's more subtle. It's a more realistic jaunt through time for Kasuga. The frame freezes on Kasuga, his mouth agape. Then we cut to a shot from behind his back, and we can see that he's intensely fixed on a young couple. The girl is asking her senpai to come see her in a play. A dolly zoom then pulls Kasuga in towards the camera while the couple recedes and grows smaller. The effect is very cinematic. It's very ambitious for animation, and it serves to emphasize the distance between Kasuga as the viewer and the couple as the subject of his gaze. Even though they're all standing still, there's a sense of movement achieved by that dolly zoom, and it it feels like Kasuga is falling back into his own memory, even as we hear Shikaru's voice asking Kasuga to come see her in a play. The connection between the young couple and Kasuga's memory is made here. We cut back to Kasuga's face as the memory washes over him, and the image loses focus before a fade to black and a cut to our first color image of the film. It makes for a pretty effective transition from our frame story to our main narrative. And I think I've mentioned frame stories in the past. They basically exist to surround the main narrative. Like a frame surrounds a picture. They tee up the real story that the authors want to tell. Anoshi is not about whether Ayuko and Kasuga get accepted into college. That's a small detail. It's about the ending of their love triangle with Shikaru. And the frame exists to serve up that main narrative while also giving us some information in advance, chiefly that Kasuga and Ayukawa are together and seem happy in the then-present day, whatever year that might be. We hear the sound of cicadas over the Chapter 1 title card. Leaves are seen in a rack focus that brings Abakabu into focus from the background. It tells us that we're now viewing events occurring in the summer months, even before Shikaru mentions that it's July. They use dialogue to tell us what month this is, but they needn't because they've already used visual cues and auditory cues to tell us this is summertime. The image of leaves out of focus in the foreground gives the impression that we're positioned as voyeurs watching Abakabu from across the street. We're not merely viewers outside of this narrative. It kind of brings us in a little bit. 
It's a technique that's been used before in Orange Road, namely in Message in Rouge and in the Winter Beach episodes. And where we were previously in our frame story watching Ayuko and Kasuga somewhat clinically from this bird's eye view in black and white, we now have this saturated color and foreground objects that help us to feel present in the story. And we see that Shikaru is going to be auditioning for a play called Downtown Cats, which is heavily reminiscent of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Cats, which actually seems to have been very popular in Japan. It's been performed continuously there since 1983. So it's very likely that this is an intentional reference to that very well-known play. Kazuga even does a little impression of Shikaru here when he, he tells her that he'll come support her in the play. Lappi. Ayukawa enters Abakabu and walks on screen just as Shikaru walked off to show Kasuga a brochure for a summer school to prep for their college entrance exams. And here we see Kasuga juggling the girls figuratively. He's promising to support Shikaru in her play moments before Ayukawa pitches him on more school, which I'm sure he's excited about. Kasuga stays put in the frame. He stays still. He's still seated at the table in Abakabu. Shikaru and Ayukawa, on the other hand, move about the image, coming and going. They're kind of revolving around him, orbiting him, almost. And here we also see their age gap highlighted as well. I've often mentioned Shikaru's relative maturity gap versus Kasuga and Ayukawa. She has this handicap in the love triangle because she's not in the same place emotionally as the other two. And a lot of that is a function of age. Because Kasuga and Ayukawa are older, they're going through things that Shikaru doesn't have to yet. In this case, the college entrance exams. And because they're the same age as each other, they're going through the things that Shikaru doesn't have to together. Pushes Kasuga and Ayukawa together, in a sense. If Kasuga were the same age as Shikaru and in her grade rather than Ayukawa's, it would be likely be that he and Shikaru are pushed together by fate, and things might have ended differently for Shikaru. This might be a very different film if Kasuga were just a year younger. But as it is, there are these practical forces that push Ayukawa and Kasuga both together and pull them away from Shikaru. We see that exemplified when Shikaru attempts to tell Ayukawa about the play she's going to audition for, and Ayukawa just brushes her off with a not now. It puts her aside. It trivializes Shikaru a bit, making her seem juvenile by comparison to Ayukawa and Kasuga, as if the play that she's going to try out for is unimportant. But wait, we're talking about college entrance exams. This is important stuff. Hold on. Wait a minute with your unimportant play. And there's a final close shot of Shikaru's unfinished orange sorbet before the scene ends. I think it foreshadows. Shikaru is out. Ayukawa is in. We cut to Shikaru busting her ass, rehearsing dance moves in a gymnasium, and it serves to show us how committed she is to landing a role in the play. Next, we cut to Ayukawa and Kasuga as they've just signed up for their summer school. Both scenes are short and wordless. They serve to show that each character is following through on their commitment to their respective paths. In the next image, we see a bell on Shikaru's bicycle. While Kasuga and Ayukawa were riding mopeds in the opening, we see Shikaru on a bicycle, which also subtly reinforces the perception of her as more juvenile than the other two. She's riding a bike. Kids ride bikes. Now, the bell 
is an important motif in this film. We're going to see it over and over again at some key points throughout this film. First, we see it on Shikaru's bike. She's going to give it to Kasuga. They're going to hang it in his room together in the next scene. And that bell is decorative. It's quite lovely. We're going to see a bell later at Avocabo, and I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes when we get to it. But the the bell imagery is key, and it's key to Shikaru's characterization in this film. And here we get the closest thing to a comedic interaction when Shikaru encounters the twins as they're leaving for the pool. This is the most consistent moment with the TV series, tonally, because Kurumi warns Shikaru that she's going to be alone with Kasuga and implies that if she gets him too excited, he won't be able to help himself. This extends the common comparison of men as animals, implying that they're slaves to their urges, which implies that men are not at fault for their sexual misdeeds, which is, of course, wrong. It's the kind of cop-out excuse Komatsu or Hata would use. They couldn't help themselves, but it's not true of Kasuga. As Shikaru reacts in her typical fashion, she's blushing, she loudly brushes off Kurumi's implication. The twins run off. They're gone when Shikaru opens her eyes. It really is the, the scene in this film that is most consistent with the TV show. And that's as funny as this movie gets. That's our comedic high point. Kasuga finds a dried flower in one of Ayukawa's notebooks that she'd lent him. And he looks it over as he smiles a little bit. He's no doubt thinking about her in that moment. Did she leave it there, intending for him to find it? Shikaru brought with her some ice cream to share with Kasuga, give him a little bit of break from studying. And as she's preparing their bowls, the shot composition features the ice cream container prominently positioned close to the camera, takes up a large amount of the frame. Shikaru and Kasuga, on the other hand, are in the background. Their faces are not initially visible, only their bodies, until they sit down. Their faces move into the frame. There's a lot of that in this film as well, where characters are partially off screen or their faces are otherwise obscured. A lot of times we're going to see body language only as we're hearing lines delivered by the actor. I'll point it out a few more times, but on a rewatch, definitely keep your eyes open and watch how many times these characters are depicted, but something's covering their face or partially covering their face or their face is partially off screen or they're looking the other way and you only see the back of their head. There's a lot of that going on in this film. Now, when we next see Shikaru's bell, it's hanging in Kasuga's room, as I mentioned. It's a gift and it's no doubt going to remind him of her later in the film. In their conversation, they reference Wada Kanako, whom all fans of Orange Road should be well familiar with for tracks like Natsuno Mirage and Sad Heart is Burning, Janina, Salvia no Hana no Yoni. She's contributed a ton to the TV series, and her contribution to the Anohi soundtrack is heavily praised by Orange Road fans as well, for good reason. And I'm going to play much of it during this podcast. With this reference, Wada becomes a character within the Orange Road media franchise, albeit as herself. We even see Kasuga handle a CD called Kanako Land, which does not seem to be a real-world release by Wada. We see Shikaru and Kasuga's faces briefly reflected on the shiny underside of the CD as Kasuga removes it from its case. He turns it over and we see both of their faces very, very briefly, just a flash, 
which serves as a reminder of the film's superior animation relative to the TV series. It's kind of showing off their uh, budget and the, the type of thing they could afford. Like a Bird is the track that Kasuga chooses, and a glance at the lyrics might reveal another reason for Shikaru and Kasuga to have been momentarily reflected in the CD. The song itself might foreshadow the impending end of their relationship, just as they were literally reflected in the mirror-like bottom of the disc. Their characters are also figuratively reflected in the music encoded on the disc. The song is slow and melodic. Wada's performance is almost mournful. It's not the upbeat bop we would find in a TV series. There are lyrics about a bird that continues to fly even as the sky fills with clouds, foreshadowing the turbulence of Shikaru and Kasuga's impending breakup. More lyrics asking why the singer can't love only the song's subject imply the love triangle that's about to end. Thus, we have an artistic reason, a symbolic reason for our close-up shot of Kasuga removing the CD. It wasn't just about the filmmakers flaunting their animation budget. The song continues to play as we get a pivotal moment, the inciting incident that kicks off a lot of what's to come. Shikaru kisses Kasuga. It's a real kiss, unlike some of the small pecks on the cheek that she's given him over the TV series. A pan up from Shikaru's feet as she's standing on her tiptoes, all the way up to their smooch, shows us that Kasuga's got his eyes closed. He's not in a state of shock, as we might have expected, having seen the TV series. He's enjoying it. A cut back to the bell as they kiss shows it ringing again, and it connects the sound of this bell to the moment Shikaru kissed him. This bell could be a metaphor for Kasuga's relationship with her. It's decorative. It's ornamental. All things considered, it makes for a relatively idyllic scene. The stuff of nostalgia, it's the type of moment that Kasuga will inevitably look back on as emblematic of this period of his life. We cut to an image of the bell chiming in the breeze one final time as the scene ends, bookending the scene which began with a close-up shot of that same bell. The next image is an establishing shot of the exterior of Kasuga and Ayukua's summer school, and it provides a stark contrast to the warm, summery nostalgia of the previous scene. It's an urban environment. We see other buildings around it, as well as power cables crossing the screen. Everything's made of glass and steel. It seems so much less personal and intimate coming on the heels of Kasuga's room with Like a Bird playing. Ayukawa is waiting for Kasuga just outside, and you can tell she's miffled that he's late, but we're about to find out that she's double pissed because she knows about the kiss as well. 
Of course, Shikata is going to tell her best friend about her kiss with Kasuga. There's an interesting shot of Ayukua rapidly turning around to head inside as the bell rings. The school bell, that is. And it appears in this choppy slow motion. The background is a blur, and there are lines in Ayukua's hair as it flips behind her when her head turns to communicate this rapid movement. And we even get a brief freeze frame on this image, really driving home how upset Ayukua is with Casca right now. Casca slinks in late and can immediately tell that Ayukua is upset with him about something. It's like his only skill. Ayukua knows about the kiss, and yet Kasuga tries to convince her that nothing happened. He's lying, of course, and as she leaves, Ayukua calls him on it. Typically, Kasuga tries to downplay his relationship with Shikaru, and here it's no different, except it's hard to downplay a relationship as just friends if you're making out with the person. But Kasuga isn't the only liar here. It's easy to focus on his lie and consider him in the wrong for hurting Ayukua. But she's lying to him as well by saying she doesn't care that he kissed Shikaru when it's very obvious that she does care. So just as Kasuga has spent the entirety of the Orange Road anime franchise downplaying his relationship with Shikaru, Ayukua has spent just as much time downplaying her feelings for Kasuga. I've said before that I think Ayukua owns most of the blame for the love triangle. She pretended not to know Kasuga opening the door for Shikaru to pursue him, and then she made it clear to Kasuga that she would not appreciate him hurting Shikaru. There are several other examples of Ayukua expressing a desire for things to remain as they are, such as in the Tanabata episode, the Island of Forbidden Love episode, and the Paranormal Powers Caught on Video episode. I might add that all three of those episodes were also written by Tarada Kenji, the same guy who wrote this film. So while Ayukawa is right that Kasuga is lying about the kiss, there may also be the sense that she's not just upset with him. She may also understand that she had a hand in shaping their current situation. This makes me think of the downplaying both she and Kasuga engage in over the course of the Orange Road anime. It might not just be about what other people around them think. Kasuga doesn't want Ayukawa and others to think his relationship with Shikaru is serious, but maybe he's trying to convince himself that what he and Shikaru have is platonic, so he won't have to feel guilty about his simultaneous pursuit of Ayukua. Likewise, Ayukua doesn't want anyone, especially Shikaru, to know that she loves Kasuga. But maybe she's also trying to convince herself that she really doesn't care about him in that way, as a protective measure, in case he really does choose Shikaru. Later that night, we see Kasuga in a phone booth, calling Ayukua only to be hung up on. This tactic worked a lot better for him in TV episode 15. A cut to the interior of Aiko's room establishes the space with a close-up shot of her desk, showing us the pictures that she keeps there. The first picture is of Ayukua and Shikaru flanking Kasuga. He's in between them both. The second picture is just of Ayukua, and the third picture is just of Kasuga. This is the one that's going to be important later. There is no picture on Ayukua's desk of only Shikaru. Ultimately, Ayukua ignores Kasuga's calls, which would seem to indicate that she's not yet ready to own her part of their current predicament. In our next scene, we learn that Shikaru is planning to knit a scarf for Kasuga. This is after bringing him ice cream and hanging a wind chime bell in his room. The aggregation of all of these gestures is to show us how much Shikaru thinks of Kasuga and how much she does for him. 
Shikaru mentions that Ayukawa is really into knitting, which Casca seems to not have really known, despite the major subplot of the Casca's Hellish Valentine episode dealing with the accidental destruction of a scarf she likely made for him. Regardless, the mention of Ayukawa diverts Casca's attention from Shikaru. He's appreciating how much of a pickle he's in. Perhaps he chose to meet up with Shikaru in a public place to avoid any romantic contact. She blows him a kiss anyway. The next cut is to a rather non-standard establishing shot. Rather than an exterior, we cut to a close-up shot of a box of oranges, or a box that formerly contained oranges, which takes up the entirety of the frame, the word orange is scrawled across it in English script. A pan sideways and slightly out reveals Ayukua chatting with her sister and her sister's husband. Ayukua crosses the room and the camera follows her, but not before panning back across and into the orange box, which momentarily blocks our view of Ayukua, even as the camera moves to follow her. As her sister and brother-in-law leave, Ayukua looks up at a blimp that's casting its shadow down on her. And when we cut back down, it is to Shikaru and Kasuga gazing up at that same blimp crossing the sun, which gives us a pretty slick transition. That's pretty good stuff. And it tells us that these events are occurring simultaneously. Since the filmmakers divided this film into segments for us, chapter one is about Kasuga and Shikaru's relationship, its progress, and Ayukawa as an outsider to that entity. To use a more recent colloquialism, chapter one is about the old normal. Ayukua calling Kasuga and immediately hanging up in the next scene, as if she suddenly realized what she's doing, shows us an intimate, lesser-known side of Ayukua. She's always thought of as this badass cool kid who has all her shit together. She's confident. She can take out anybody if she needs to. The fandom tends to see Ayukua as supremely capable. She can ride a killer wave as easily as she can fight off gangsters, and she can skateboard down an active construction site in the snow as easily as she wrestles ladies that look like they came out of Fist of the North Star. As an aside, Ayukua's feats that I just mentioned seem so zany and out of place in the context of Anohi. It's hard to imagine that this is the same character that did all of that wacky shit. But here we get to see that as capable as she is, she's not superhuman. She strikes fear in the heart of delinquents with just a steely gaze, yet she herself is nervous or shy or bashful to call the guy she likes. Ultimately, she can't even bring herself to complete the call at this time. Instead, we cut to an impressive shot of her sitting on her bed, beginning to cry, as the camera pans 180 degrees from the left to the right side of her face. She's kept central to the image in a close-up shot, and the background is out of focus. I have to imagine that this shot is much harder to animate than it would be to film in live action. And this shot has become one of the most iconic for this film, due to its expressiveness and ambition. Circling Ayukua as she sits alone in her room emphasizes the isolation she's feeling in this moment. She feels that she's losing Kazuka. Maybe he's already chosen Shikaru. Nor can she fully celebrate with Shikaru the latter's progressing relationship with Kazuka due to her own feelings for him. We cut back to the photo of Kasuga on Aikua's desk before dissolving to black to end chapter one. Just as with chapter one, the chapter two title card 
transitions seamlessly into the first shot. This time, it's Jingoro walking across the screen on the Kasuga apartment balcony. The camera pans to follow him until Kasuga's room comes into view. Komatsu and Hata are there, and Kasuga is sleeping. I've complained enough about how often people are just in Kasuga's room hanging out while he sleeps, like that's a normal thing people do. Just go over to your friend's house to hang out with him while he's unconscious. It only makes sense if you're visiting someone in the hospital or something. A cut to the camera positioned under Kasuga's bed reveals a stack of porn magazines, a relic of the bygone era captured in Orange Road. The nudie magazines elicit the kind of responses we've come to expect from Komatsu and Hata, but Kasuga seems disinterested. He's got bigger worries on his mind. Hata asking Kasuga for tissues is pretty nasty, though. In the TV series, Hata sometimes carries a balloon, which Komatsu mistakes for a condom, and he inflates the balloon when he's sexually aroused and then releases it for it to shoot across the frame, which is a more TV-appropriate metaphor for him ejaculating. There's no metaphor here. Hata just came over to Kasuga's house to jerk off, apparently. Kasuga tries to ignore Komatsu and Hata so that he can continue studying. He's here contemplating his future, and they're still behaving like 15-year-olds. It's obvious that Kasuga is leaving them behind as well. They tease him about Shikaru and ask him if he's had sex with her yet, and in that moment, the bell she gave him chimes. It reminds us of their intimate kiss from earlier. Kasuga imagines Shikaru in her school uniform as he sheepishly admits that he has thought about having sex with her. It's an interesting choice of attire to present the mental image of Shikaru in. As the school uniform serves as a reminder of her youth, she's still a high school student after all, instead of imagining her in a more sexy attire, Kasuga has seen Shikaru in a bathing suit plenty of times, normal clothes a ton, yet still Kasuga imagines her in a school uniform. It's a bit of a deviation from the TV series characterization of Kasuga, wherein he really doesn't seem to give Shikaru much thought at all. His prior characterization has shown him singularly focused on Ayukawa. He's recognized that Shikaru is a girl and that she has a sexuality, but really he pays her no mind in terms of actually thinking about actually doing sexual things with her. As Komatsu and Hata encourage Kasuga to have sex with Shikaru, these are good friends, they think it would be cruel of him to ignore her sexually. The wind chime she gave Kasuga continues to ring, as if in agreement that he should consummate his relationship with her. In the next scene, we see Shikaru is making progress on her scarf for Kasuga, even as she takes a break from her rehearsal. And we also see Kasuga continuing to study hard. This is as studious as we've ever seen him be. He's even attending summer school without Ayukawa, whose seat beside him remains empty. Chapter 2 gives us just a little more levity as Komatsu and Hata photobomb Manami and Kurumi as Kasuga Takashi attempts to take their pictures at a shrine for the festival. The purpose of this scene, as well as the others that include Komatsu and Hata, is to show us how flippant and unconcerned they are with their future. They're just enjoying their summer break. While Shikaru and Kasuga and Ayukua are all working hard and applying themselves and trying to shape their futures and even undergoing their own personal crises, we see that for the rest of the world, life goes on. The scene also helps to tee up the festival later that night. At Ayukua's house, Shikaru is already dressed for the festival. Ayukua is helping her with the scarf that Shikaru is trying to make for Kasuga, which seems a little weird. Does Aikua know it's for Kasuga? 
she should, but apparently she doesn't because she acts a little surprised when Shikaru tells her that it's for Kasuga a few minutes later. When Shikaru goes up to Ayuko's room to get some alternate knitting needles, Ayuko remembers that she has Kasuga's photo framed on her desk, right next to the needles, in fact. I guess it's been a while since Shikaru has been in Ayuko's room. We last saw her in Ayuko's room in Kyosuke's Hellish Valentine episode, which would have been February of 1988. Shikaru's response to the photo of Kasuga is silent but telling. As she clenches her fist, she grimaces. She makes a pained face. Shikaru doesn't show those feelings to Ayuko, however. She acts normally as they continue their conversation. However, their conversation takes a turn and starts to reveal some deeper meaning after this. While they're walking to the festival, Ayukua tells Shikaru that there are things Ayukua envies about her. Ayukua probably means that she envies Shikaru's open relationship with Kasuga, but she says that it's Shikaru's ability to always be so happy and upbeat. And it's true that Shikaru is typically very bubbly, and Ayukua is often pensive and even sullen. But we also have good reason to believe that Shikaru's personality is at least in part an act. We just saw her resume her friendly and upbeat demeanor with Ayukua after her response to seeing Kasuka's picture on Ayukua's desk. And Shikaru objects a bit to Ayukua's characterization of her by saying that Ayukua is making her sound dumb, which is a sly way for Shikaru to acknowledge that she's aware of more than she lets on, and she's only been pretending to be oblivious. We also learn that Shikaru is going to the festival alone. Ayukua was only walking her there. With both Kasuga and Ayukua claiming to be too busy to attend the festival, I have to wonder if Shikaru maybe suspects that they are spending the evening together. This is Wada Kanako's An Undecisive I Love You, another soulful insert track that appears here as a piece of non-diegetic music as Ayukua is finding the notes that Kasuka had left for her. That gesture seems to have been the straw that broke the camel's back, but don't tell Ayukua I called her a camel. As she walks through her house and then upstairs, the camera pans to follow her, and the oranges that Shikaru brought Ayukua come prominently into the image. There are Three oranges, which many people on the internet have mentioned, can be seen as a symbol of the three Orange Road characters forming the central love triangle. Never mind the fact that Shikaru actually brought four oranges and Ayukua had just eaten one. Ayukua silently returns to her room to change into her yukata, and we get an example of the Kuleshov effect as she turns her head to the right and glances off screen, followed by a cut to an image of her telephone. This tells us that she's thinking again of calling Kasuga. I mentioned Ayukua often being pensive and sullen, and this is about as pensive and sullen as she gets right here. Fireworks burst in the distance, reminding us that there's a festival occurring. cut from the sky as fireworks burst to Kasuga's apartment exterior bridges the transition from Ayukua to Kasuga in a very similar fashion to the blimp from earlier. It's a reminder of all of these things occurring simultaneously, that this interpersonal drama is happening even as the world keeps turning. The fireworks continue to go off outside as Kasuga answers Ayukua's phone call, muffled now, illuminating the darkened room of Kasuga's apartment. 
This pivotal moment comes at near exactly the midpoint of the film, and it's not exactly the confession that I'd been expecting, honestly. Ayuko admits that she took it for granted that Kasuga liked her, and Kasuga, for his part, admits that he's always loved her. She tells him she wants to see him, so, of course, he rushes over to a groundswell of music. All of a sudden, Kasuga is power sliding his moped like an 80s action hero. He got the idea that maybe Ayukawa likes him, and he's doing Mario Kart on Rainbow Road shit to get there. Look out, my mans. But Ayukawa's phone call never really sat right with me. She was taking it for granted that he liked her, but not really doing anything about it until she found out that he kissed Shikaru, and it seems like her pride was injured, maybe. Like she thought for the first time that she might actually lose Kasuga to Shikaru, and it feels kind of insulting to both Shikaru and Kasuga. Like she regards herself as clearly the superior choice to Shikaru, and since Kasuga liked her, she could just sit back and rest on that. She didn't have to work as hard as Shikaru. It's something that gets mentioned by Shikaru later on at the end of the film. She didn't have to bring Kasuga ice cream or make scarves for him. This vision of Ayukawa seems a bit at odds with how she's been characterized in the TV show, wherein we see her many sweet gestures towards Kasuga. It's also a thread that Shikaru is going to pick up on in a little bit. Meanwhile, Ayukawa is standing by the door. She's flicking the light switch on and off like she's making a student film for Stan Brackage. It seems a little kooky at best, but it might be symbolic of her on-again, off-again, semi-pursuit of Kasuga. And Kazuka don't even knock on the door. He just walks right in. I'm surprised he didn't kick the door in and do like a barrel roll across the threshold and jump up and grab her. I'll give Kasuga this. He's resolute. Even as we get the ultimate bag over the head and kick to the groin that this movie has in store for us and Kasuga, this moment was the grandest disappointment to 15-year-old me. Kasuga goes in for the kiss. The music is all... This is the moment we've all been waiting for. For 48 TV episodes and 8 OVA, nearly 24 hours worth of Orange Road anime. And she turns her head away, kiss denied. For his part, it was Kasuga's first honest attempt at a kiss. Both times he kissed Shikaru, it was her doing. She initiated it. For once, Kasuga finally goes for it, and boom, denied. Ayukawa embraces him instead. She rests her head on his shoulder, and it might be even more intimate than a kiss, even if it's less passionate, especially given Ayukawa's overwhelming tendency not to let people get close to her. It's like no one knew Ayukawa completely. Ayukawa even held her best friend out a little bit because she had to conceal her true feelings for Kasuga. In this moment, Kasuga is the first person that she's really let in all the way. He's the only person from whom she's not keeping secrets. Even still, the deliberate denial of this kiss has a big impact on my perception of this film. It really squashed a lot of my excitement the first time watching this film 25 plus years ago. We cut back to Shikaru's room and we see that she's happily working on the scarf that she's making for Kasuga. 
She speaks to Kumagoro, her stuffed bear, who almost bit the dust in episode 45. It's a nice touch to bring him back for a cameo here, as it enhances the continuity from the TV series, which is rather scant in this film. There's also a skateboard leaning up against the wall in her room, and I wonder if that's the one that Ayukawa used in episode 37 when she skateboarded down the construction site and almost died. There's a freeze frame of Shikaru here as she looks back at the camera, and it might be the last time we see her happy in this franchise because Kasuga's on the phone, and she's not going to like what's in store for her after this. Kasuga meets Shikaru in the park, wise of him to choose a public place for the breakup. This scene is spoofed in Project Echo, which is an indication of just how popular Orange Road was at the time and how big this film was. They wouldn't have bothered spoofing something that most of their audience hadn't seen. And it's a beautiful day. The sun is shining, the cicadas are chirping, contrasting with Koska's grim task. Shikaru's denial starts early. She pretends that Koska is making a bad joke or something while maintaining her bubbly facade, as she'd done for Aikua a bit earlier. This scene is also important because it's here that Shikaru claims to have known all along that Kasuka loves Ayukua. On the one hand, the preponderance of evidence amassed over the course of the TV series should make it abundantly clear to Shikaru that Kasuka loves Ayukua. How could she not have noticed? On the other hand, there are only a scant few times that Shikaru seems to be aware of what's going on, and they tended to occur near the end of the TV series. Furthermore, in the manga, Shikaru had no idea and was truly shocked when she learned about Kasuka's true feelings. Therefore, I tend to perceive the sequence as retconning the previous material a little bit. It is true that there are a few moments in the TV series where Shikaru seems to consider that Kasuka might love Ayukua, but mostly I think that those are included to fake out the audience, to create dramatic tension. Those moments are more for us as the viewer than for Shikaru. However, I will say that it is an excellent addition to the Orange Road mythos. It does Shikaru's character a huge service by providing her a richness and depth that wasn't there before this revelation. There was always a duality between the brash, delinquent, mean girl Shikaru and her overly sweet, nice girl persona in the TV series, but with that juxtaposition, she didn't seem to be very self-aware. She wasn't very self-aware of these two personas. Anoshi reveals that she does actually have a keen self-awareness, much more so than we've given her credit for. This is also the point in which the film gets downright hard to watch for anybody with a soul. Watching her sob and ask why she's not good enough is just tough. It's just hard. We then see parallels between Shikaru's real-life developments and the material that she's rehearsing for Downtown Cats. She gives lines about treating her like an outcast and don't run away from me, reminding her of what she's actually going through. There's an initial hint that perhaps her real-life troubles will distract her too much from the play and she might get let go. Manami and Kurumi ask her what's wrong, and she plays it off like there's nothing at all wrong in her life, albeit unconvincingly. Shikaru's one-sided telephone conversation with Kasuka continues to center the breakup solely on Shikaru. We see images of Shikaru from outside the phone booth she's using. We see her face, importantly her eyes, obscured by cards stuck to the glass. She nonetheless looks happy despite 
Costco reminding her that she should not come over with snacks and that she shouldn't call him darling anymore. To anyone walking by, she would seem to be having a perfectly pleasant conversation when it couldn't be further from the truth. After ending the call, she drops the facade, crouching in the phone booth while a young kid watches, no doubt wondering why this older teen is crying in a phone booth. I'm also wondering here if I really have to keep watching this. We're about two-thirds of the way through, and Chikaru's anguish is not even close to dawn. Chapter 2 ends here. If Chapter 1 was about Ayukua's loneliness and grief as the odd woman out in the love triangle, then Chapter 2 is about Chikaru's loss of both her boyfriend and longtime best friend. In class, Ayukua passes a note to Kasuga, asking him what happened with Shikaru, and they exchange a short series of notes detailing the breakup. The paper that Ayukua uses is like this cutesy stationery with a little cartoon bunny and a carrot on it, which is a huge contrast with what they're discussing. They're talking about the mutual dumping of Shikaru on this Disney-ass stationery. After class, Ayukua and Kasuga discuss the matter a bit further. Ayukua admits that I was right. She was lying when she said she didn't care about Kasuga's relationship with Shikaru. To reassure her of his feelings, Kasuga again tells Ayukua that he loves her. She smiles upon hearing this, but does not return the sentiment. I continue to feel disappointment. An establishing shot of the exterior of Kasuga's apartment depicts the bell Shikaru gave him, chiming away. Even as Kasuga listens to a radio program in which a listener writes in to discuss that she recently discovered her boyfriend is seeing another girl. As Kasuga ends an unexpected phone call with Shikaru, there's an interesting shot where the camera is positioned under Kasuga's glass coffee table, allowing us to see the phone and his face in the same composition. We can see the look on his face as he hangs up. This is the breakup that doesn't end, as Kasuga has to dump Shikaru several times in this film. And during these moments, it's clear from the animation and the voice performance that Kasuga does not at all enjoy hurting Shikaru, and you get a sense of his own regret. When Manami tells Kasuga that Shikaru was crying, he pauses for just a moment and then returns to his studies. To Manami, it might seem cold of him, but what's he supposed to do with that information? Relent and marry Shikaru? Back in his room, Kasuga hears the sound of Shikaru's bell chiming away again, so he gets up and wordlessly yanks it down, grimacing as he does. This moment makes it clear that Shikaru's bell does indeed remind Kasuga of her, its bright and perky chiming being reflexive of her persona. In the next scene, Shikaru unexpectedly shows up at Kasuga's house and walks him slash follows him to the train station. Just before parting, we hear Shikaru's important line to Kasuga, the one that sets this whole frame story off, telling him that she is going to get the lead role in Downtown Cats and begging him to come see her performance. Kasuga says nothing before the train door closes, seeming as cold here as he did the night before. And it's still hard to watch, but given Shikaru's persistence thus far, it's clear that Kasuga is behaving appropriately. He can't afford to be kind to Shikaru at this point. And yet, as a protagonist character, this behavior makes it a bit hard for the audience to connect with. It's much easier for us to relate to Shikaru's honest and open experience of heartache than it is for us to relate to Kasuga's cold distance. Shikaru is waiting for Kasuga atop the 100 stairs after his class. We can see 
The dusk has fallen, and so we can imagine Shikaru has been waiting around for him for a long time. The Hundred Stairs is a welcome sight, but as an image, it's also subverted in Anoshi. This is the place where Kasuga met Ayukawa for the first time, and they met several times on those stairs over the course of the series. It's even been the site of a few comedic pratfalls. It's the spot where Umao and Ushiko met for the first time. The stairs symbolize union, the couple meeting, falling in love, getting together, taking steps to form a relationship. In Anohi, however, they're just another stop on the Shikaru heartbreak tour. We see a shot of her tears hitting the concrete. She's literally crying on these stairs that prior to this were a happy spot for Kasuga, one that evoked nostalgia for him. Next stop on the tour, Shikaru shows up at Abakabu in a heavy downpour, in a shot that's reminiscent of, and quite likely a nod to, the manga ending. Shikaru is finally going to confront Ayukua over the love triangle. And we see a textbook use of rack focus here. Ayukua, standing in the background, is in full focus, while Shikaru, who is positioned much closer to the camera, is out of focus and blurry, which invites us to keep our eyes on Ayukua as she tells Shikaru she is sorry. The field of focus suddenly shifts, bringing Shikaru's face into focus and limiting the depth of field, which instantly pulls our attention to her reaction. That rack focus is therefore used to corral the gaze of the viewers. Another rack focus shows us Ayukua's reaction when Shikaru claims to have worked so hard to win Kasuga's love and that Ayukua did nothing to earn it. Ayukua naturally objects, but I kind of see Shikaru's point a little here, and I'm an admitted fan of Kasuga and Ayukua as a couple. Throughout this film, Shikaru has done a lot of things for Kasuga that show us that she's constantly thinking of him. By contrast, Ayukua didn't even tell Kasuga that she loves him. Of course, Shikaru's accusation that Ayukua never does anything for Kasuga doesn't really hold up when you consider all of the episodes that supposedly precede this film. We've seen many gestures from Ayukua that indicate her affection for Kasuga. As Shikaru leaves, we see a close shot of the Abakabu store bell that I mentioned a little bit earlier. It rings as Shikaru storms back out into the rain. It's a more plain bell than the bell that Shikaru gave Kasuga. It's designed for practical function, whereas the bell that Shikaru gave Kasuka is decorative, it's ornamental. The bell that Shikaru gave Kasuka represents Shikaru as she'd like to be, the bright and upbeat persona that she puts forth. The Shikaru as she wishes to be seen by others. But the bell at Abakabu represents Shikaru without the artifice, stripped down to her essentials, as she was in that scene. Open, raw, emotional, no facade, no fakery. In the next scene, we get a piece of intertextuality featuring one of the touch theatrical releases based on the popular manga by Adachi Mitsuru. Touch, of course, was extremely popular, so it makes sense that Kasuga and Ayuko would go to see it. As with Watakanako, the filmmakers are inserting something that really exists in the real world. It also seems kind of like a boneheaded move for Kasuga to take Ayuko to go see a movie about a love triangle. And as with the earlier radio program that Kasuga was listening to, the dialogue of the film reflects what's happening in Kasuga and Ayukua's real life. This dialogue doesn't seem to bother Kasuga or Ayukua. They don't seem uncomfortable with the subtext. Neither do they seem to be particularly intimate here either. There's no insert shot of them holding hands or anything. 
At this point, I will seriously settle for just them holding hands. But no, it's not in the cards, Jason. There's just a bit of levity as Casca and Ayukua shop together after the movie. Casca imitates a mechanical bunny that was bobbing its head left and right, causing Ayukua to giggle. And we see a hint of intimacy as Ayukua holds up some shirts against Casca's chest, kind of imagining him wearing them. And I, I must mention that Ayukua and Casca do look genuinely happy in the pictures that they take in the photo booth. Next, we get an Umau cameo, no Ushko. That's weird. Umau and Ushko's consistent appearances were included in the TV series to poke fun at the romance by lampooning the happily ever after couple. It was always a little self-aware and hip of a romantic comedy show like Orange Road to make the romance between Umau and Ushko seem so silly. As we saw with episode 48, there were a lot of parallels drawn between the couple of Umau and Ushko and the Kasagana Yukua couple. But just as with the 100 Stairs, the Umau and Ushko cameo is subverted. Instead of their usual profession of undying love, we see Umau holding a crying infant, presumably the couple's child, while begging Ushko to come home. Apparently, Ushko has left Umau at some point after birthing their child, Shikao. Thus, in Anoshi, the Umau and Ushko cameo is used to reinforce the theme of heartbreak. Guys... Even Umau and Ushko can't stay together. What hope do any of us have? And it just doesn't stop. Are you ready for another wave of Shikaru's grief? She shows up at Kasuga's late night, unannounced, to tell him that she got the lead role. She even has the poster with her name printed on them. At that point, she figures she's going to just grab Kasuga and not let go, and he actually kind of has to wrestle her a little bit. It's a little ugly. We get more Shikaru tears, more coldness from Kasuga. He remains out of focus and close to the camera while she's in focus, asking him why he doesn't like her anymore, what she ever meant to him. This movie is an hour long, and it feels longer than Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Kasuga isn't even in focus as he walks away. Shikaru remains in focus, and we're only shown part of the back of her head. Kasuga finds a bench to sit on, and since the movie's almost over, mercifully, they pull out the big guns. This is our third Wada Kanako record in the trilogy that she made for this film, and it's called Embrace That Sky. Like An Uncertain I Love You and Like a Bird, Embrace That Sky is a slower, more haunting piece of music than what Orange Road has served us in the past. Like the others, it fits the content of Anoshi very well. And here we go full music video mode. It's MTV. With the music taking center stage, there's no dialogue. All of the other audio tracks are ducked under the song. We see images and we have to interpret the story without any dialogue or voiceover. Kasuga comes home to see Shikaru still waiting for him outside the entrance to his apartment, so he can't go in. Despite having a big practice exam the next morning, 
he must try to wait Shikaru out by grabbing a coffee at a small convenience store across the street. Note the convenience store clerk's expression at 1 hour and 37 seconds. He looks depressed as f***. He looks like he just spent the last hour watching Anoshi. At any rate, Kasuga can see Shikaru across the street, and it begins to rain hard. In a moment of compassion, which is a defining characteristic of Kasuga's, he reaches out and touches the window, as if reaching out to Shikaru. He looks towards screen right, and we cut to a close-up of umbrellas for sale. And this is another textbook example of the Kuleshov effect, telling us that he's thinking of taking an umbrella out to her. But he knows that he can't show her that bit of kindness as it is only going to give her false hope. So instead, he silently bids her farewell. The animators show his eye beginning to well with a tear to remind us that Kasuga is not by nature so cruel. It hurts him to cause Shikaru so much pain. Probably it was inevitable. There's a lot of implication that breaking this love triangle apart was necessary for these characters to reach adulthood. So if chapter one was about the old normal, chapter two was about change. Chapter three is about finding the new normal. And it's not easy. It's painful. We go back to the black and white of the then present day in February of whatever year it is. Ayuko calls to Kasuka. She snaps him out of his reverie. She seems to notice that he's a bit saddened at recollecting the story that we all just saw. And she intuits that he's thinking of Shikaru. Via their dialogue, we learn that her play is opening that day and should be starting very soon. At that moment, a leaflet blows quickly across the screen and toward the camera, covering the lens in white, followed by a pan out, revealing stage lighting. So we cut imperceptively from Kasuga and Ayukawa to check in on Shikaru and see how she's doing all of these months later. And it's a slick cut. Still in black and white, we see snippets of Shikaru's performance, Sans audio before cutting back to a color sequence that tells us that we're seeing another flashback. This one much shorter. The entire flashback is composed of a series of still images, like photos themselves, as Kasuga looks through a photo album with Ayuko and Shikaru. Shikaru is embarrassed by the photos, and Kasuga doesn't recognize Ayukua and teases her for looking like a boy, even though he should recognize boyish Ayukua since he supposedly time traveled back to 1982 and met her there. But the point is to end the film with one nice final memory of the good times that the three of them spent together. The title of the film is I Want to Return to That Day, but what day do they want to return to? And this gives us an example of the three of them as a threesome, as a love triangle, but as a functional one, getting along and enjoying each other's, genuinely enjoying each other's company. This is the day that they want to return to. All three of them seem to feel a sense of grief at the end of the love triangle. They all mourn the thing that had to end. And this day serves as an example of what they're losing. So it works as both a welcome reprieve from all the heartbreak, but also as a reminder of what they had to give up. We cut back to Ayuko and Kasuga for our last image of them. It's a bird's eye vantage point. They're walking side by side. They're not especially happy together. They're not 
skipping through the campus. They're just kind of moving forward in black and white, and we only get to see the back of their heads. A series of cross dissolves replaces each image with one that's a little further away. So it's a kind of an unconventional zoom out with these jump cuts. Kasuga and Aikua grow smaller, and the frame starts to include more and more other people as it covers a larger area. So the effect is to witness Kasuga and Ayukua as they recede into a crowd. They move away from us. Their faces are still turned away. We're just looking at the back of their heads. These two remarkable characters who gave us so much enjoyment. They don't have a rousing final kiss to a groundswell of music. There's no wedding scene. There's no fanfare at all. In an utterly realistic turn, they simply blend in with the crowd, no different than any of the anonymous students that they're mingling with. It's highly anticlimactic. Poetic in a sad way, but anticlimactic. In one of the scant pieces of voiceover, Kasuga informs us that both he and Ayukua were accepted into college. Here the end credits begin to roll, but they are a must-watch. Embrace That Sky plays again, and Matsumoto Izumi's name is the first credit to roll past. Appropriately. And on the left side of the screen, we see a strip of 35mm film stock containing images from the film that run relatively slowly upwards. The credits of many films are a place for the diegesis to break down as credits are assigned for the various pieces of the work. So this is an appropriate place within the film itself to acknowledge Anoshi as a fictional work of film art. Acknowledgement of Anoshi as a film work by the film itself is somewhat of an indication that it does work as a fiction within a narrative, like Komatsu and Hata's student film about Kaiju Jingoro. We are held within the fictional work until the end. A lot of the discontinuity between Anoshi and the preceding series can be reconciled by a reading of Anoshi as a fictional narrative within the grander narrative of Orange Road, just as Kaiju Jingoro was. There's not a lot of evidence for this, but I think it's as valid a reading as simply ignoring all of the continuity errors written in by Terada Kenji, of all people. The film stock running up the screen replays some of the iconic images from Anoshi. Ayuku was turning towards the camera. The wind is sweeping her hair. Shikaru rides her bicycle without a care in the world. Happier times. Kasuga and Ayuku are out on their date. Providing this additional imagery also encourages an audience to continue watching through the credits, which are commonly skipped. And you should watch all the way, since Anoshi employs a post-credits stinger, in which Shikaru is seen walking off stage to the sound of applause. The director compliments her performance, and she seems to be in an okay place. Shikaru closes the door to the locker room and faces the audience. She extends her forefinger to make a gun with her right hand before slowly pointing it at the camera and then loudly saying, <laughs> Cut to black, and the film ends here. The use of a post credit stinger is actually very interesting here. Stingers have become a very popular element of the superhero genre of films, thanks to 2008's Iron Man and subsequent use in every MCU film that followed. However, stingers have been used in film for decades. The 1979 Muppets movie includes a post credit stinger in which Animal yells at the audience to go home. Go home! Go home! Bye-bye. 
Similarly, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris, who frequently breaks the fourth wall, walks back on screen to address anyone remaining in the theater, telling them the movie is over. They should go home. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. Also, Deadpool faithfully recreates Ferris Bueller's mise-en-scene in an obvious homage to that film in a stinger after the credits in the first Deadpool movie. Unlike the stingers that we see in the MCU films, the stingers I just gave examples of are metafictional, as is the one at the end of Anohi. In these metafictional stingers, the characters acknowledge that they're in a film and that the story has ended. Shikaru's acknowledgement is not as direct as Animals or Ferris Bueller's, but she points directly at the audience and winks, as if to remind us that this was a film, and despite her heartbreak, she's going to be fine. She's a fictional character, after all. And in a lot of ways, this is Shikaru's movie. This movie belongs to Shikaru. The depth of her self-awareness and the extent to which she hides her true feelings while displaying a happy and carefree attitude really enriches her characterization in a way that we don't get with Casca and Ayukua. They're not enriched so far above and beyond their characterization in the television series. We really learn how much of an actress Shikaru is in Anoshi. I'd always presume that Ayukua was the actress in the mirror since she always has to pretend not to like Kazuga and pretend to support Shikaru's relationship with him. After all, Ayukua had acted as if she didn't know Kazuga in episode one, which may have set the whole love triangle in motion if you're inclined to agree with me. However, this film shows us that it might actually be Shikaru that's doing all the acting. It's appropriate that Shikaru embarks on a career in acting and stage because it's exactly what she's been doing all along. And let me just say, Anohi is a film with a lot of merit. It's right that Anohi receives the praise that it does. It's ambitious filmmaking. There's a great score, great soundtrack. Some would even say legendary due in large part to Watakanako's haunting performances. The animation is also the best you're going to find in the Orange Road media and some of the best for its genre and time with slick editing and really thoughtful composition of imagery. The performances are great as well. Hara Eriko steals the show as Shikaru. She really gets a lot of material to work with. On the other hand, it's a film that doesn't quite stand on its own, and I'll explain what I mean. The filmmakers rightly presume that nearly everybody viewing Anoshi will have already seen the TV series. The OVA hadn't been released yet, so those weren't on the table. But the presumption is that you've watched the TV series before you come in to see Anoshi in the theater. Therefore, Anoshi benefits from previous media establishing a lot about these characters and their relationships. So as a solo work viewed by itself, I don't believe it holds up as well when it's removed from its parent franchise. If it's analyzed alone, Kasuga, for instance, doesn't have a lot going on for him in this film. He's not an especially charismatic or likable protagonist without our foreknowledge of who he is or what he's like. We only know how painful it is for him to hurt Shikaru because we understand his depth of empathy, but we only know how empathetic he is because we've seen the TV series that led up to this film. 
So with all of that said, despite Anoshi benefiting from sitting atop the Orange Road Media franchise as a kind of capstone, there are so many tonal and stylistic and narrative differences that it's really hard to reconcile Anoshi with the preceding television series. Continuity issues aside, ignoring the wonky timeline, it just doesn't feel like Orange Road to me. There's very little, very sparse voiceover from Kasuga. The soundtrack does not slap. It's not upbeat at all, and we're used to getting bangers from Orange Road. There's no ESP, not even a mention. There's no misunderstandings, no pratfalls, wacky hijinks, virtually no comedy. Honestly, Anoshi feels joyless. It's bereft of the kind of mirth and humor that Orange Road consistently delivered to this point. As my chief example of this, we've been waiting 48 TV and 8 OVA episodes for Kasuga and Ayuko to finally get together. We've been rooting for their relationship since day one, through all the insecurities, all the misunderstandings, all the failed attempts. Every week we come back to Orange Road to see these two together. I can't think of another television couple as iconic to me personally, and they have to be in the top five for most of the serious Orange Road fans out there. And yet there is no joy in their pairing in Anoshi. There is no elation that they're finally together. Ayukwood never even says she loves him. The closest she gets is saying that she took it for granted that he liked her. It completely subverts the central conceit of all of those prior episodes. Even once they're together, neither Kasuga nor Ayuko even seem particularly happy. They enjoy their date, sure, but it's not like they're doing backflips that they're finally together. It's difficult to feel the love they share in Anoshi because it's underportrayed. There's no honeymoon phase with smiling and handholding and canoodling. Am I asking for too much? I just want a little canoodling. So in short, my opinion is that the filmmakers chose to focus so exclusively on Shikaru's experience and admires the film in heartache. It makes it not fun to watch. It removes any of the enjoyment of Kasuga and Ayukua finally getting together, which we've waited so long for. It's all of the hard work, but none of the payoff. I will say that the film is very good for what it is, but it's not particularly consistent with the rest of the Orange Road media. And some of the best films out there are serious, heavy films. For the past hour plus, I've resisted the urge to jokingly compare Anoshi to Schindler's List. That would be inappropriate. I would never do that. There's no joy here, only catharsis. But for me at least, I don't revisit Orange Road for catharsis. I'm here for funny, lighthearted stories, maybe a little wistful nostalgia set to a soundtrack of absolute bangers. Compared with the ending of the TV series and the manga, this is my least preferred ending. The TV series doesn't deal with the love triangle at all, unfortunately, but at least Ayukua admits that she's fallen for Kasuga, and the focus is squarely on the culmination of their relationship. They don't even kiss in Anoshi. What kind of ending is that? They don't even kiss. At least they get a kiss in episode 48. Now, in my opinion, the manga does the best job of a balanced ending, balancing between the dissolution of the love triangle and uh, emphasizing the formation of Kasuga and Ayuko's relationship. I don't think the manga ending is perfect either, but I'll talk about that on a future episode of Abakabu Cafe. But because of all of this, I will rewatch Orange Road episodes any day of the week, but I've only seen Anoshi a handful of times. I'm not revisiting it because... 
it's simply not as fun or enjoyable to watch as the TV series or the OVA. And a lot of the best movies are hard to watch. I I mentioned Schindler's List a moment ago, and I did for good reason. It's an important film. It's a well-made film. It's a difficult film to watch. It's a better film than Big Trouble in Little China, but I will watch Big Trouble in Little China hands down a hundred times for every one time I'll watch Schindler's List. Now, if you're depressed from watching Anoshi, if you need a little bit more levity in your life, I would like to invite you to please head over to patreon.com slash Team Almy. You can become a patron of Team Almy Studios, the studio that brings you this fine podcast. And I watched Anoshi for you people, okay? Um, there you will find an exclusive podcast called Shit Happens When You Party Naked. That's too real for the internet. That will turn your frown upside down, I promise you. Even Shikaru would crack a smile listening to Shit Happens When You Party Naked. There's also other exclusive content there. There's some video content. I mentioned that I'll be uh, analyzing the pilot episode that was directed by Mochizuki, the director of of this fine film. And um, we're also going to be doing some commentary. Uh, I've been waiting for Patreon to release their own streaming platform. They promised to do it in 2022. They still haven't done it so Um, I wanted to do it live. I wanted to have live commentary, but I think I'm just going to record the video of the the commentary tracks for all of the Orange Road episodes coming very, very soon. So please head over to uh, patreon.com slash team Almy, become a patron. I'll also send you some free swag. Also, check out Creatures of the Night. Um, Check out Movie Mass. Those are two other podcasts that I work on. I'll include the links in the show notes so that you can go check those out. I want to say... This was a long episode. I really appreciate everybody who stuck with me for the entirety of this analysis. Look, it's not my favorite piece of Orange Road Media, but it's important. It's in a very important piece of this franchise. In our next episode, we're going to hit up Sheen Core, Summer's Beginning. So let's look forward to that. In the meantime, I scoured the internet. I dug everywhere. I went deep into SoundCloud of all places dug through all the crap there. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're lucky. But I found a gem for you guys. This is a remix of An Uncertain I Love You by Wada Kanako. Please enjoy.
Bang.